Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is a priest in the Melkite Catholic Church of America and pastor of St. Elias Melkite Parish in San Jose, California. Reverend Sebastian Carnazzo earned his Ph.D. in Biblical Studies at the Catholic University of America and has taught sacred scripture for institutions including Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary of the Fraternity of St. Peter, St. Patrick's Seminary of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and Christendom College. He's a frequent speaker on pilgrimages to the Holy Land and is the author of the book, Seeing Blood and Water, a Narrative Critical Study of John 1934. Please uh, join me in welcoming Father Sebastian Carnazzo, and the floor is now yours. Thank you, Andy. All right, why don't we begin in prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and unto age of ages. Amen. Our Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and dwell in us. Cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O oh, good one. We are looking today and next week at one of my favorite books of the whole Bible, the book of Sirach. And so uh, we'll begin tonight with a little bit of introductory material. I hope it's not too boring. We'll jump into the biblical text tonight. Don't worry. That's the part that gets me excited. But for the sake of, well, the importance of the historical context and all of that, I'm going to pull up for you a handout that Andy, Andy, have you, do you have the handout on the website ready for them? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Thank you, Andy. So what I want to do is give you a little bit of introductory material. So the, uh, the topic tonight and next week, the book of Sirach. Or Ecclesiasticus. So first of all, let's find the book in our Bible. Okay, so that's the, this is one of those books in the Bible that is often confusing for people because of the different names. In fact, one of the questions that Andy sent me uh, from some of our participants was, why are there all these different names for this book? So the name of the book, let's find it in our Bible. So first of all, in your Bible, you open up your Bible right in the middle. You're going to typically be somewhere in your wisdom literature or the book of Isaiah, okay, depending on how you opened your Bible. Typically, if you open a Bible right in the middle, you're going to find yourself somewhere in the wisdom literature or the book of Isaiah, okay? And that's because right about halfway through your Bible, you come to the end of the wisdom literature and the beginning of the prophetic literature. So it depends on how you open, you'll be somewhere in there. So if you're in your wisdom literature when you open your Bible, then you're going to go 
all the way to the end of your wisdom literature. Don't turn too many pages. It's not a large section. And if you get to the book of Isaiah, you've gone too far. So put it in reverse. Now, if you opened your Bible and you found Isaiah or maybe Jeremiah, you're going to need to rewind. Turn left, okay? Go a bit to the earlier part of your Bible, the wisdom literature, okay? All right, so that's finding the wisdom literature in your Bible. The book of Sirach is at the end of the wisdom literature in most Bibles. Now, having said all that, some Bibles have the Old Testament arranged in a different order. I think some of the New American Bibles sometimes do this. So, but typically, you're going to find the wisdom literature here in the very center of your Bible. All right, so... If you found the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, all right, the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, we can then deal with uh, this topic of the name of the book and why it's sometimes confusing for people if they're trying to find it. All right, so the, um, uh, let's see, who was it? Judy asked the question, why do some Bibles refer to the book of Sirach and others the book of Ben Sirach? Okay, so we're going to look at that first here. So if you look in your Bibles, I have in the RSV Catholic edition here. Now, hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, well, you have not been a member of the ICC for very long. So you need to go get a Bible and come back very quickly and find your place here. So the RSV Catholic edition that I have here has Ecclesiasticus or the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Okay, so your Bibles are going to have some sort of version of that title in it. It might just say Sirach. It might say Ben Sirach. It might say Ecclesiasticus. Or it might say the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. Okay, now the name Jesus there is probably making some of you nervous, so we'll get to that in a second. So, so first of all, when you look in your Old Testament, in your wisdom literature, there is a book called Sirach, Ben Sirach, okay, the short version to Sirach, and we'll talk about why that name is there. And then there is a longer version, sometimes you'll see the wisdom of Jesus, Ben Sirach, we'll talk about that. And then you'll also see sometimes just Ecclesiasticus. Now, with that last name is where we often have some confusion. Ecclesiasticus, that name, is sometimes confused with another wisdom book, which is only a few books earlier in your Bible, called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, which is from the same root in Greek, having to do with the gathering, okay, the gathering of people. Ecclesia, most of you know that word, ecclesia, or in English, ecclesiastical. That's an English adjective coming from the Greek there, ecclesiastical, something having to do with the church or with ecclesia means gathering, okay? the congregation, the people of God. All right, so those are the different names. And whatever name is in your Bible, it really doesn't matter. Ecclesiasticus, Sirach, we'll talk about why those different names are there and the history of all that as we go through this introduction. But most importantly, right off the bat, let's make sure we're looking at the same book, okay? So you're looking at, in your wisdom literature, typically the last book in your wisdom literature, right before the book of Isaiah, called Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with another book, Ecclesiastes, 
also known as Kohaleth. Okay? All right. And by the way, that'll be a fun Bible study sometime for the ICC as well. That's another one of my favorites in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're all looking at the same book, hopefully, and maybe you have different titles in your Bibles. We'll deal with that as we go through the introduction, and you'll understand why. So if you look on the, the handout that is also available for you on the website, you can see uh, some basic introductory topics. So first of all, who wrote the book, right? Who is the author? When you are looking at any piece of literature, whether it's a book of the Bible, it's uh, an article in the New York Times, it is uh, a novel, whatever, whatever the case may be, whether it's, it's historical or it's fictional or whatever it is, the first question you want to ask is, who is the author? And then the second question, of course, is who is the intended audience? And it's typically not you or me. Okay, that's as Americans, everything's about us, right? But that's typically not the audience of most of the literature you're familiar with. Even a, a piece of, uh, of American literature, let's say Gone with the Wind, that book is not written for you. It was written for a particular audience, a particular period in American history, has a particular political bent to it next to And nothing right or wrong with that, but you have to know who is the author, who is the intended audience, and then what is the purpose of writing? Those are the three questions you want to ask when you look at any piece of literature. If you want to understand the, the, the book, if you want to understand the, the article or whatever it is, uh, and examples of this would be, you know, like Tolkien's Trilogy of the Ring. So many people know the Trilogy of the Ring or the story of The Hobbit, but they have no idea who was Tolkien, what was going on in England at the time, and what was his purpose of writing? Or C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, this is great stuff. Look at all the Christian imagery. Why is it all there? And why is it so subtle and often? Well, there's a purpose, a reason, and that has to do with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and what they were doing in England and the problem of agnosticism and things like that in that period. Wonderful literature, but you're getting a lot more out of it if you know who is the author, who is the intended audience, and what's the purpose of writing. Okay, so the author, Jesus. What? So many, I'm sure, are scratching their heads here. Jesus wrote a book. All right, so you probably have had, if you've been a member of the ICC long enough, uh, so the name Jesus is a common name, okay? It's a common name. Jesus is the same as the name Joshua. Joshua. Okay, so if I said the name of the author of this book is Joshua, you all would have been probably fairly comfortable. Okay, a guy named Joshua, which one? You mean, you mean Joshua, that friend of Moses, or Joshua when they came back from the Babylon exile? But Joshua and Jesus is the same name. This is only in English, as far as I know. There might be some other languages that do this, but uh, it causes some trouble, for sure, for English speakers. Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And so when you're looking at the Bible, which was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and you see the name Joshua or Jesus in your English text, you're dealing with the exact same name. And that is very helpful to know when you're looking at typology, 
For example, Joshua, a friend of Moses, who took over for Moses and led them into the promised land, crossing the Jordan at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus beginning his ministry at the Jordan River, bringing them into the place where Moses could not bring them. We've talked about that in other ICC studies. However, with all that in mind, that's not really the issue for us here. We're not dealing with typology, but I just want to make sure that you are relaxed and comfortable with knowing that Jesus wrote a book, just not the Jesus you're thinking of. Jesus, son of Eleazar, son of Sirach. Now, the word son in Hebrew is ben, B-E-N, ben. So you could write this out, the authorship, Jesus or Yeshua, ben Eleazar, ben Sirach. Okay, so that's where you get the name in some of your Bibles, Jesus, son of, or Ben Sirach, or simply the short name is Ben Sirach, son of Sirach, okay? All right, so there's the author, a guy named Jesus, having nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth, nor Jesus, Joshua, friend of Moses. This was a common name in Hebrew, okay? So Joshua slash Jesus son of Eliezer, son of Sirach. And we get that information from the prologue, which we're going to look at in a second. Okay, And at the end of the, our time together next week, we'll be looking at the, one, the last two chapters of the book, chapters 50 and 51, and we'll see there also another reference to this author. Composition. The book was composed around 190 to 180 B.C. And that is an approximate, okay? You'll see commentators trying to narrow that down or widen it, but that's about a nice general approximate time period when we would say the book was probably written. And there's reasons for that. In the 50th chapter of this book, which we will be looking at later, in the 50th chapter of this book, we hear about a priest named Simon. Priest named Simon, the high priest. Now, all commentators agree that this priest is Simon, the son of Onias, or Yohanan. Simon, the son of Yohanan, son of John. And uh, he lived at uh, well, he died when, we, when he was born, but we know he died around 196, 196, okay? Now, he's referred to in the book, and so they would give you uh, a little bit of a marker. It's got to be written sometime during his life or, or after. Many commentators see the way it's spoken of his glorious uh, references as he's, he's now gone, he's passed. He's one of the, one of the great ancestors. The way he, he comes toward the end of a long list of great ancestors. He's, so he's therefore probably dead. So if he died in 196, then the book is written sometime after that. But you have another, uh, another barrier of when this, this book was written, and that is on the other end, it doesn't seem to have been written any later than 180 or so, somewhere in there, because we have another very important event in the life of uh, the author, and that was the tragic 
events that surrounded Antiochus Epiphanes' attack of Jerusalem, which happened right around 175. So these are some markers we have. You can, if you want to really push it out there, you can say 196 to 175. But most commentators would say, well, you give it a little bit of a barrier there. Let's kind of, I mean, you might even say 185 would be a kind of a nice little marker. Stick it in there somewhere. 185 BC, written sometime around that. But it could vary by, you know, five, six, seven years on either end. Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did in, in, to Jerusalem, when he attacked Jerusalem in 175, turned the temple into a pagan temple, and what he did, in, which caused eventually the Maccabean Revolt, and the stories we have in the books of Maccabees, that was a major event. And so that, there's no references to that in the book, no hints at some sort of major tragedy going on in the life of the author who was from Jerusalem. So again, this is, seems to be kind of a high point in the post-exilic period, which is what you would have had right around 190 to 180 BC, this high point in the time of the post-exilic uh, people of Israel who have rebuilt their temple, they've rebuilt the city, and they're now awaiting the return of the glory cloud. But Andrew's Epiphanies has not yet come. And the events that surround the Maccabean rule have not yet happened. So you've got this kind of peaceful moment and high point in their post-exilic period. It was written originally, as we'll learn from the prologue, as we see that together, in the prologue, it was written originally in Hebrew, in Hebrew. Okay? And then it was translated into Greek by the grandson of Jesus. Okay, now this is where it often gets confusing for people. We're talking about two grandsons now, okay? The author is the grandson of a man named Sirach. Okay, the author's name is Jesus. He wrote the book in Hebrew while he lived in Jerusalem. And in that period, they always referred to individuals by their father, or even especially if they have a grandfather or an ancestor, it's really important. They'll call him the son of. Think of Jesus being called son of David over and over. Well, how are you going to call him? Why do you call him son of David? Well, because the great ancestor, right? So the name Jesus, the name of the individual who wrote this book in Hebrew while he lived in Jerusalem during a time of peace, kind of a high point in that post-exilic period before things really started heading south wrote a wonderful uh, book of wisdom literature. His father was Eleazar. His grandfather was Sirach. And the fact that he's often called simply Jesus, son of Sirach, means probably Sirach was probably a pretty important guy. Eleazar, the actual father of Jesus, was probably not as important or well-known. Sirach was probably an important guy. We have, no, we have no information on Sirach. We have no information on Eleazar. Okay, so you can forget Sirach for a second, the grandfather of the author, and Eleazar. Those are just the ways they refer to people. Think in the New Testament, you know, Simon, son of John. So they don't have last names. They have their father or grandfather or a great uh, ancestor in the recent past that they're called son of. All right, now having said that then, the author being Jesus, who is the grandson of a man named Sirach, he has a grandson. We don't know who Jesus' son was. 
We don't know who Jesus's grandson's name was. We don't know their names. But the grandson of the author, the grandson of Jesus, or Joshua, who is the grandson of Sirach, the grandson of Jesus is the translator of this book from Hebrew into Greek sometime around 117 BC. All right, and we gather that information from the prologue, which we'll look at in a second. So it's important to understand that the, the book has a little bit of a complex history to it, not too complicated, I guess. There's an author named Jesus, Joshua, whatever you want there. He wrote it in Hebrew. Sometime around, we'll say, 185 BC. It was translated from Hebrew into Greek by the author's grandson, who is nameless. We don't know his name. Sometime around 117 BC. And we can gather this from looking at internal evidence in the book, both internal evidence in the actual body of the text of when the author, Jesus, wrote these things down, and then the prologue written by the translator, the grandson, who translates Greek, he wrote a little intro to his translation. And in that translation, he tells you when he did it. And that can be dated to right around 117 BC. Okay? All right, so canonicity. The Hebrew text continued in use among the Jews as it was quoted in the Talmud. And the majority of it has been found at Qumran. Qumran is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, That's, when you hear about Qumran or the fine Qumran, that usually means the books of Qumran. There's a Qumran is refers specifically to the little building structure that was at the foot of the cliff, halfway between the cliff and the actual shore of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a bunch of scrolls that were found in caves above the little structure, and it's been assumed by the majority of Dead Sea Scroll scholars that there's some connection between the scrolls that were found in the caves and the little building structures, foundations, remnants of that that are at the foot of the cliff. It's speculative. It could have nothing, no relationship whatsoever, but it's perfectly plausible, and most scholars suggest that. So that's just so when you hear Dead Sea Scrolls, we're referring to those scrolls that are in those discovered in the caves. Uh, and then the, um, this is you know, halfway through the last century, and then the, uh, and then Qumran, when someone says the Qumran scrolls or the Qumran community, they usually mean someone who was behind the composition of the scrolls or collection of them and hiding them in the caves and who dwelt down at that little structure. We had a discussion about this in an earlier ICC study. Okay, so the book has been found in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, in fragmentary form in the uh, in cave 11 of the Dead Sea Scroll find in the Psalms scroll reference passages of actual from Sirach the book of Sirach in Hebrew and that's very valuable as we're going to talk about at the end of our study there's some very interesting things we find about the end of the book and then it's also been found in in fragments pieces of it two-thirds of the book, uh, found at the Cairo Geniza. The Cairo Geniza, what is that? Probably if you've been reading anything about biblical studies, you've heard about the Cairo Geniza. The Cairo Geniza is obviously in Cairo, and Geniza is a hole in a wall in a synagogue. 
when the Jews would make copies of their books. You know, they're reading from Genesis, for example. There's a synagogue, and they're reading from the Genesis scroll. And it's starting to kind of get frayed and falling apart. It's time to make a copy. So they hire a guy to make a copy of it, a scribe. And then what do you do with this old book of Genesis or the Torah that's starting to fall apart? Or maybe a wealthy donor of a synagogue donates a brand new, nice, beautiful scroll of the Torah to be read in the synagogue every Saturday. What do you do with the old one? Sacred book. So what they would do rather than burn it, get rid of it, is hold on to it. And they would bury it in a safe way in the wall of the synagogue. They would etch out a hole and they would put in the wall of the synagogue whatever scrolls they wanted to get, and then they would plaster them closed. Uh, once archaeologists realized this, that ancient Jews did this, this has been incredible. When they find an old synagogue with walls still, they start knocking on the walls, any hollow spots, because you're going to find some ancient scrolls, typically. And so the Cairo Geniza is a classic example of this, where they found a treasure trove of old fragmentary manuscripts. One of the manuscripts that was found in that Cairo Geniza was the two-thirds of the book in Hebrew, the book of Sirach which means they were reading it there in that synagogue. Okay? The uh, Greek text, well, it's also found, by the way, at Masada, uh, and then also there's quotes of the book of Sirach in the Talmud. So it was being used, it was part of the early history of early Judaism. I mean, early meaning Judaism of the Christian era. <clears throat> religion of Israel before that, right? But when you come to, when you talk about Judaism, the way we're talking about here, we're talking about Judaism that becomes, uh, it's kind of starts to become into the form that we know it right around the uh, first and second century AD called rabbinic Judaism. Okay. Uh, the Greek text was used by the early church and came to be called the church book. So the Hebrew text was not used in the early church except for maybe in a very early phase when you might have some Hebrew being still read in certain synagogues, maybe in Jerusalem or something like that. But the use of the book of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus, uh, we certainly know of in the early church and we know of its use in Greek. So the Greek text was used by the early church and came to be called the church book or the church thing from which comes the name of this book, Ecclesiasticus. Ecclesiasticus, with a U.S. on there, is an English transliteration, transliteration, right? Translation is when you actually take a meaning and translate it to another word in another language. This is a transliteration. When you take a word from another language and bring it into the other language with the same sounds as best as you can with the new alphabet. Names are typically transliterated rather than translated. Okay, so the book, Wisdom Ben Sirach, Wisdom of Jesus, Son of Sirach, is named in the Greek, early church Greek tradition as ecclesiasticos, which is a Greek adjective, literally just meaning the church thing, the church thing, okay? the Ecclesiasticus Biblos, the church book. And then that's transliterated into the Latin, Ecclesiasticus. And we hear about its usage 
in the early church, and with this name, very early, the book was used by the early church, and we have evidence of this from Origen and St. Athanasius, patriarch of Alexandria. You remember, this is Athanasius the Great, defender of the faith against Arius. So that's North Africa. That's both Origen and, and Athanasius are from North Africa, from Alexandria. So the book was used, we know for sure, there uh, as an important source of catechesis. Important source of catechesis. And then from there on out, and again, there's earlier references, we're going to talk about those in a second. Though from there on out, the book becomes, is, you, start, you see it all over in the Fathers of the Church, and very important for, again, for catechesis. Now, why would they use this book for catechesis? We have, let's see, how many people, Andy, are logged in here tonight? 215. Surely we have, among 215 ICC members, a few catechists among us. If we don't, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Get to work. All right, so I doubt that you're using this book in your Sunday school program or your RCIA program, okay? That's a tragedy, and this is part of the reason why the ICC exists and part of the reason why we're having this talk right now, okay? To give you these tools so you can walk into that classroom and do what the early church was doing. So Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus, the church book, they used this because the catechesis in the early church, catechizing pagans who want to come to the church, these individuals are coming out of a Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, which is a Greek world, they loved wisdom, philosophy, right? This is a love of wisdom. They were really into it, wisdom. And so one of the ways to appeal to someone when they wanted to come into the church, they I think I want to become one of you Christians. They would give them the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs. That was one of them they'd give them. They'd also give them this book. And this book was so commonly used, because it does a little more than the book of Proverbs does, this book was so commonly used, it became known as the church book, the thing that they used to catechize. Why is that? Because it's filled with wisdom. Uh, right off the bat, uh, someone from the Greek world could read Ecclesiasticus in Greek and, and be at home with it. Oh, wow, this is neat stuff. And they're reading along, they're being drawn into it. And then what the advantage of this book over the book of Proverbs is that while it's filled with Proverbs, with wise sayings, that would be attractive and easy digestion for a Greek, it slowly moves into information that's critical for knowing salvation history, which was the majority of the catechesis in the early church, catechizing someone from Adam to Jesus, which you and I would call the Old Testament. That was the primary catechesis in the Holy Church. So they would introduce them to catechesis through the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiasticus, Sirach. And this was a nice, easy way to kind of introduce them to Israel and this, and this religion, this Judeo-Christian tradition. It was also a secret weapon because if the book of Ecclesiasticus or Proverbs is the word of God, then there are also, right from the beginning, being introduced to Jesus, who is the Word of God. And so this is a, a very important, it's not just any wisdom literature, this is the Word of God. So they're reading wisdom, but while they're reading wisdom, 
they're actually coming into a relationship with Jesus. And so then as they hit the end of the book, chapter 44 and following, they begin to hear about salvation history with Adam and the rest. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so very important book for that reason. All right, so the structure, the book does not have any clear outline or flowing development, okay? So you read through the book. It's like the book of Proverbs. It's this collection of Proverbs, and commentators have tried to isolate sections, and we'll look a little bit at that, but it doesn't matter too much for the most part. Chapters 1 through 43, for the most part, is just a bunch of Proverbs, and there are sections that focus on different themes, as we'll see. But for the most part, it doesn't have a particular flow, uh, at least that I can discern, and commentators disagree on the structure, and so therefore I think that's enough evidence that there's not a lot of structure there. But you do definitely have, you can divide the book into a couple of parts. You have a prologue written by the translator, and then you have chapters 1 through 43, which is a bunch of Proverbs in sections, different topics. And then you have chapters 43, 44 to 50, where you get into now salvation history according to the characters of salvation history. And we'll talk about that. And then you have an epilogue at the end, chapter 51. It starts in chapter 50, but 51. Okay. All right. Then content, the content of the book. Jesus, son of Sirach, or grandson of Sirach, is instructing his disciples that have gathered around him. So the book was originally written in Hebrew for the disciples of this man named Jesus, or Joshua, who lived in Jerusalem, and he wrote what he said down sometime around 185 BC. Okay? All right, so that's also important for us. Who's the intended audience? Disciples of this author, men who are seeking wisdom, young men seeking wisdom. You can think of the, almost like the, the disciples of Jesus, right? These disciples, young men looking for information about life. And then also that tells us a little bit about how we can apply the book to ourselves today. We'll come back to that in a second. Okay, so then uh, the style, the style, as with the Proverbs in the other wisdom literature, the style is usually synonymous or antithetical parallelism bunch of fancy words there. Synonymous, similar, okay, or same. Antithetical, opposite. Parallelism. So synonymous parallelism is in Hebrew wisdom literature, Hebrew poetry, they love synonymous parallelism. You're familiar with this. O sons of Jacob, O people of Israel. You hear this all the time. Same thing. What's great about that is that synonymous parallelism and antithetical parallelism, though it's less common, is a very easy thing to translate. One of the most difficult things for a translator to do when it comes to any piece of literature is to translate rhyme and meter. Very difficult. Rhyme, assonance, alliteration, and then meter. Very difficult to translate that into. You can try and take a piece of poetry in English and translate it into another language to get the same meter or have a nice meter to it and have, have nice rhyme or rhythm. Very difficult. Very, very difficult. But what's wonderful is about Hebrew poetry, it doesn't use rhyme or meter. It uses synonymous parallelism, which is very easy to translate. 
Oh, sons of Jacob. Oh, people of Israel. You can translate any language you want. Okay, so that's nice. So we don't lose anything when we translate Hebrew poetry. Well, might lose a little bit. We, for the most part, don't lose a whole lot of the beauty of the language. All right, so then personification of wisdom. This is something we're going to look at. We're going to look at together, personification of wisdom. As in the other books of wisdom, wisdom is personified here as well, particularly in chapter 24, though we'll also see it in chapter 1 a little bit, chapter 24. And we'll talk about the reason why it's personified in the feminine when we come upon it, and rather get into the text rather than do too much intro here. So I just want to I want you to see there is a personification of wisdom. You say, what does that mean? Wisdom is spoken of in a personified way, and that's really important for us as we're going to see. Then also, it's New Testament and early church usage. And you can look these up on your own. The uh, New Testament and early church usage, I'll bring these up as we go through the book. There are strong parallels between this book and Matthew, particularly Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 29, and Sirach 6, 24 to 25, and Sirach 51, 26 to 27, about Jesus says, Take my yoke, it's easy. You know this from Matthew 11. This is, you hear a hint of this in the book. Is there, is Matthew, is Jesus' words in Matthew, in a sense, quoting or alluding to the book of Sirach? Uh, a very clear example, this is in John's gospel, John 6, 35. Jesus says, he who comes to me uh, will never hunger or thirst. Well, we're going to hear about the wisdom of God is something which people hunger for and thirst for more. And so in John's gospel, this is the fulfillment, the fullness of it. We'll talk about that when we get there. That's a clear reference, as most commentators would say, to the book of Sirach there. And then the earliest known clear quotations of the text in the early patristic literature, or even in Christian literature, then clear quotation would be Didache 4.5 and Barnabas 19.9. Okay, that's the introductory material, and we're going to kind of, all that stuff we just talked about, we're going to talk about that as we go through the book, okay? And as we go through, I'm going to keep reminding you, so don't try and memorize the stuff or scratch all the stuff down. It's all there for you. Andy's posted on the website. You can download it later, print it off, highlight it, write notes for yourself later on. But now, before we lose any time here, I want to jump into the book and give you a little flavor of the book before we end our introductory lesson tonight. So let's turn to Sirach chapter 1. So you're going to open up your Bibles to the book of Sirach. You're probably already there. We already talked about the title. Now let's look at that prologue. It's written, you'll notice, in a different form than chapter 1. It usually doesn't have chapter verses in most Bibles either, so you don't get confused. The prologue is in prose. It's in a paragraph. It's just information. Then you, when you see chapter 1, you're going to see the actual text. And that's when you start to see it in verse because it was originally in poetry. The prologue. This is written. This is the introduction written by the translator. Okay. In Greek, he wrote this when he was in Egypt. Whereas many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others, the law, the prophets, and the other writings. You find that distinction. In the New Testament, you hear about the Law and the Prophets. And then sometimes you hear about the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. So this is another way to refer to what you and I would call to the collection of Old Testament writings. 
the law, the prophets, and the rest, that follow them, on account of which we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. And since it is necessary not only that the readers themselves should acquire understanding, but also that those who love learning should be able to help the outsiders by both speaking and writing, my grandfather, Jesus, Joshua, after devoting himself especially to the reading of the Torah and the prophets and the other books of our fathers, and after acquiring considerable proficiency in them, was himself also led to write something pertaining to instruction and wisdom, in order that by becoming conversant with this also, those who love learning should make even greater progress in living according to the Torah. So that's a, a nice summary of the Jewish way of seeing the books of the Old Testament. The Torah is the word of God. That is what's revealed. The prophets and the wisdom literature, the rest of the books were seen as almost like blossoming or expansions of the Torah. Okay, so they saw the, the law and the prophets as like an expansion or a blossom of it, almost like the way we have in our New Testament. We've got the Gospels, and then you've got the rest of it. Right, which has, there's almost a hierarchy there. And so he says, the whole purpose of the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the whole pro purpose of my, my grandfather, what he did, was so everybody could understand the word of God, better. that is the Torah. Okay. You are urged, therefore, to read with goodwill and attention and to be indulgent in cases where, despite our diligent labor in translating, we may seem to have rendered some phrases imperfectly for what was originally expressed in hebrew does not have exactly the same sense when translated into another language so this is a translator is always wrestling with this problem not only this work but even the law itself the torah the proficiency the, uh, the prophecies and the rest of the books differ not a little as they originally expressed so he's saying look it, it, the the Greek forms of our old of our literature that would be the, the Septuagint, as we eventually know the collection of books, is a translation of the Hebrew, and it, it gives you the sense of it. But sometimes it doesn't exactly gives you you know what the Hebrew would have said, or maybe there's a there's a slight difference of emphasis and things. We talk about that in a lot of our classes. Okay, and then he says, when I came to Egypt, in the thirty eighth year of the reign of Ebergites and stayed for some time, so 132, I found opportunity for no little instruction. It seemed highly necessary that I should myself devote some, some pains and labor to the translation of the following book, using in that period of time great watchfulness and skill in order to complete and publish the book for those living abroad who wish to gain learning, being prepared in character to live according to the Torah. So his purpose of translation is for a Greek-speaking audience. A Greek-speaking audience that is Jewish Christians, I'm not Jewish Christians, so Jews who speak Greek, not Jewish Christians yet, but Jews who speak Greek in the diaspora. So Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, Jews who live in, he's come from Palestine, he's now in Alexandria, and he realizes that the Jews around him who speak Greek don't have access to a very important work that was written by his grandfather, and he decides to translate into Greek for them. His purpose is the same purpose as his grandfather, to share the great wisdom of God's people so that they may devote themselves more properly to the following of the Torah, whether they speak Hebrew 
That would be the original purpose of the original Hebrew text, or they speak Greek, the purpose of the translation. Okay? Same thing. Same purpose. Okay, so now let's take a look at chapter 1 and give you a sense of this. All wisdom comes from the Lord and is with him forever. All wisdom comes from the Lord. It's something that comes from the Lord. Underline that from there, comes from. The sand of the sea, the drops of rain, the days of eternity, who can count them? The height of heaven, the breadth of the earth, the abyss and the wisdom, who can search them out? Wisdom was created before all things 